every drug I have ever done. Uh, I, have, I mean, this is one of those things when people say, I'm not sure if I'm an addict. I have no question about it. Every drug I have ever done has been the solution to my problems at that time. have ever wondered what separates top performers from everyone else, you probably discovered it is just a couple differentiators that determine wild success from average results. My name is Don McPherson, and for two decades I've been working with executives to help them optimize performance at the individual team and organization levels. Now I interview exceptional performers in athletics, music, entertainment, and business, so we can all learn from them. Welcome to 12 Geniuses. Have you heard about the opioid epidemic in the United States? More than 72,000 people lost their lives from drug overdoses in 2017, and more than two-thirds of those deaths involved opioids. Our guest today is Jim Geckler. Jim is CEO of Harmony Foundation, an addiction recovery center in Estes Park, Colorado. In the first part of the interview, Jim shares his background and his personal journey of recovery. In part two of the interview, Jim gives advice to those who are afflicted with addiction, and he gives recommendations for friends, relatives, co-workers, and supporters of someone who is struggling with addiction. Jim, welcome to 12 Geniuses. How are you doing, Don? I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be here today. We have known each other for a long time, 15, 15 or 16 years. Yep. And you have a remarkable story to tell, and I would like you to tell that today in in part one of our interview here. So if maybe you could describe what you were doing from a career perspective from the day we met through today. Sure. Well, when we met, it was 15 or 16 years ago at least. I was living in a halfway house, and I was a barista for a coffee shop at the Mall of America. I was relatively new to recovery. I'd been sober for about two years and was figuring some things out, and um I needed a place to live, and you had an apartment in the uptown area of Minneapolis, and um, I knew someone who was living there, and I kind of moved in with them, and you know, then they moved out, and I stayed, and I think I, uh, you were my my legal landlord for probably six years, six seven years. I uh, was a barista for a while and became a manager pretty quickly, ran that coffee shop for a while. And one of the great things that we had there was I was able to recruit from sober houses, halfway houses, the uh, sober high schools that used to exist in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and had a real strong foundation for people in early recovery who would come and work there. And there's a, a a woman who was 16 when I hired her, and she's a mom now and a yoga instructor. Uh, there's a young man who was uh, in a halfway house who's now a surgeon living in Boston. You know, people who really took the opportunity for recovery and, and launched it. I was getting ready to go back to school and uh, become a counselor. I was going to be a, a substance use counselor, and they have an excellent program at the Hazel and Betty Ford Foundation. And I was lined up to do that. I had made some changes at work, so I would be able to continue to work and go back and forth to Center City. I wasn't in a point where I could go to school full-time and not work. And um, I was actually at a church pancake breakfast with a group of friends. This is pre-cell phone kind of text that we have now. And um, 
I opened my store late. And because I opened my store late, I was terminated. They had a, a no tolerance policy for that. And I called my boss. I went out when I finally got out there at the time I thought I supposed, was supposed to be there. I called my boss and she came out and I had opened the store and gotten things running and realized what was going to happen. And I, I went to a meeting that night. Yeah, I'm in recovery and um, my recovery community is important to me. And I went to a meeting and said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I just lost my job and my whole world is turned upside down. And I was approached by a guy who was opening an LGBT sober house in Minneapolis, and he hired me. It, it While well, it was still about 15 years ago, $500 a month is not a livable wage, so I needed to find some other things to do too. And I was uh, working part-time at a gym, and I kind of stumbled across this job. I interviewed to answer the phones at night at an intervention and family consulting business. And... Um, Fell in love with it. Fell in love with the uh, the work of talking to families who are in deep crisis and helping them move through it and find solutions for the people that they loved. And I did that for about six and a half years. And um, in that time, I uh, you know I moved in in that company from answering the phones to director of their admissions group and their their phone bank to director of operations to vice president of operations um, and also got married in that time period and uh, sadly left your house, uh, bought a house up in the middle of nowhere, Minnesota, uh, right near the Hazelwood Foundation and was approached by, at that time, the executive director of that location who invited me to come and work for them. And uh, it was a huge honor. So I, I went to work for Hazelwood and I was there for just under seven years also and um, had a variety of roles that I had there from director of outreach and, and my final position was director of patient alumni and community relations. I was visiting a, a former colleague out here in Colorado at, in Estes Park at Harmony and who is our chief clinical officer, Dr. Annie Peters. And we were, we had come out to see a Devochka show one year for Halloween and they were looking for a chief operating officer. So I threw my hat in the ring and went through about two months of interviewing and came out in early December, two years ago, almost three years ago now. And, um, interviewed with the board of direction board of directors and was very honored to be offered that job so in february of 2016 we moved out to colorado and bought a house that's surrounded by elk and moose and uh, bear on occasion and um, started working here at harmony and you came out here as coo yeah and you have now taken over the ceo role Last July, so I've been in this role for 14 months. Yeah. It's it's a remarkable journey over that 15 or 16 years that we've known each other from going from barista to CEO of a recovery center. Can you talk about what you were doing prior to the day we met? Sure. So I I started using drugs and alcohol when I was about 13 years old. I I grew up in Western New York and was... I know the moment that I fell in love with drugs and alcohol. I was on the swing set at the Keenan Center in Lockport. And um, this woman who I was working on a play with asked me if I got high. I was 13. How old was she? She was probably 17 or 18. Okay. And I drank a Heineken and split a joint with her. And I was off to the races. 
So it was, you know, my, my parents are good, educated, loving people who had no idea what to do with this kid that was manipulative and bright and using and dishonest and all of these things. So they did their best, but I you know, just kept going. I used extensively through high school um, into multiple colleges and eventually, you know, in a large blow up, came to Minnesota in 1996 to go to treatment. Did treatment, did not stay sober, did another bit, did not stay sober of treatment. And things got really bad. At this point, I was injecting cocaine and crystal meth. I had stopped talking to my family. My my brother is a narcotics detective, which the irony of that never escapes anyone. And I was desperate. I was desperate and didn't know what else to do. And this guy that I was using with, we committed a series of robberies and I was arrested. And just before I met you, I was getting out of prison. So I, um, I in, in my disease, had committed a series of robberies and um, I paid the price and uh, did, did time for that. I did about three years in prison in Minnesota. And during that time, I did treatment for a full year. And that really was a great experience. There, we talk about a spiritual awakening that happens for people in recovery and hitting their bottom. And that clearly for me, I can remember laying on the ground in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, and being grateful for really the first time in a very, very long time. Why were you grateful? That, that it was over. I didn't know what was going to happen next, but I knew I didn't have to do what I was doing anymore. I'd like to say that that feeling stayed with me, and I've been grateful for you know, since, since February 5th of 1999. Um, but there are moments where I'm not. Uh, there are moments in early recovery where I thought about using again, where I had plans about using. But following what has worked for me, which is a 12-step program, I was able to build a community and build support people around me who could help with things like that. When you were in, in Brooklyn Center or Brooklyn Park and you had that moment where you became grateful, were you in prison at that time? Oh, no. I was laying on the street surrounded by police officers. Yeah. Really? So yeah. that was when you were arrested? That's when I was arrested. Okay. Okay. When you were... In your high school years, what were you using? You said you experimented with a beer and, and a joint when you were 13. And how did it progress from there? It progressed pretty rapidly. I, I went to a very small high school. I graduated with seven people. I actually love that this your, your podcast is called 12 Geniuses. The irony is not lost on me. I went to a school for gifted children. And in my class of seven, I believe three of us are in recovery. There was a lot of drug use, a lot of privilege. The drinking age was 18 when I was in high school. So by the time I was a senior, I could go to bars. Our school was surrounded by colleges. I had done every drug I would do except for crystal meth and heroin before I graduated from high school. Okay. Did a fair amount of acid, mushrooms, cocaine. And it was all accessible. It was all accessible. Okay. And then when did you start to use crystal meth? Probably, well, it was in Washington, D.C. I, I was there for a march and I ran into someone that I had known from Buffalo who was no longer living there. I was looking for cocaine and he said, I don't have cocaine, but I have crystal meth. 
And so I did that. And, um, you know, every drug I have ever done, I, have, I mean, I, this is one of those things when people say, I'm not sure if I'm an addict. I have no question about it. Every drug I have ever done has been the solution to my problems at that time. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, that, that would have been early 90s, 90, 91, somewhere in there. And you used crystal meth for how long? Until 99. Until 99. Okay. And was that really your drug of choice through that period? Crystal meth and cocaine. So I was, during a period of time, I actually used crystal meth so I could stay awake so I could shoot more cocaine. I mean, it, it is, you know, when I talk about it now, you easily recognize the insanity of that behavior. But at the time, it was a great solution. It worked for me. Yeah. You had a high school, of, a high school class of seven people, certainly teachers, administrators, fellow students, knew something was going on. What what sort of actions were taken? Very little. Very little. There was there a was, high tolerance? There was a high tolerance. Okay. I remember we had a, a parent-student faculty meeting in, in my senior year where we we wanted to be able to drink. And so we had this discussion about it. And I remember only one parent saying, this is ridiculous. You are children and we are adults. There are rules and you have to follow them. There was this whole idea that, you know, let's have dialogue and everyone, you know, which I think is, is in its purest form is great. But if you have a child who's hurting themselves to sit back and say, well, this is part of the developmental stage, you know, is, is irresponsible. There must have been a healthy amount of denial too. Oh yeah. Yeah. And we were, I mean, young, so you bounce back quickly. You know, it was, we were all very smart, so we were able to cover things up. We were all overachievers, so things looked good on paper. And I, I, I don't think, I really don't think, like, my folks knew about the drug use at all. They knew that I drank. Mm -hmm. And my mother grew up in an alcoholic home, so she hated that. They knew that I drank, but I, I think they just turned an eye to the, the drug use. February 5th, 1999. Yep was your first day being sober yeah and you've got 20 years coming up god willing yep if i if i make it as long as i only have coffee with me this morning so it shouldn't be a problem but yeah this this february i hope to celebrate 20 years of continuous sobriety and and what do you plan to do to celebrate it, it'll just be another day just another 24 hours i was in my first treatment in 96 there was a nurse who celebrated his birthday while we were in treatment and he was in recovery. And he talked about how in recovery, no day is more special than the other day. They're all the same. And expectations that tomorrow is gonna be this amazing day because it's an anniversary or a birthday or Christmas are the kind of things that trip up people in recovery. So it's just another day. You had a couple of attempts at becoming sober or recovery. What was different about this this one that stuck? You know, one of the things that I carried around, and this was probably a message from childhood, was that I was one of the smartest people in the room. So I thought I knew more than everyone else. I was filled with hubris and arrogance. And uh, it was um, not that I'm completely cured of those two things, but I think I'm better. I, I had all of my outs were gone. All of the things, the ways I could manipulate a situation were gone. I, I honestly didn't know what to do next for the first time in my life. So that 
I, I gave up and it was an incredibly freeing feeling. You know, they, you hear this in, in lots of spiritual paths. You hear it in lots of recovery paths that by letting go, it's the way that we actually get something. And, um, and I found that to be true. Our guest is Jim Geckler, the CEO of Harmony Foundation. We've been talking about his personal journey from addiction to leading one of the most respected recovery centers in the United States. When we come back from this short break, we're going to talk about addiction in America, what addicts need to do in order to have a successful recovery, and what families and friends can do to support their loved ones suffering from addiction. This is the best time in human history to be alive. People are living longer, healthier lives. Millions of people are escaping abject poverty every year, and diseases that used to be a death sentence are on the ropes. But the world is changing quickly too. Artificial intelligence, advanced robotics, 3D printing, the Internet of Things, and a host of other technologies will change the way we live and work. Is your organization ready for it? 12 Geniuses isn't just a podcast. We are an organization that educates leaders about the changing world of work so you can harness new technologies, demographic changes, and innovative business models. To learn how 12 Geniuses can help prepare your leadership team to take advantage of the changes that will shape the next decade, check us out at 12geniuses.com. We are back with Jim Geckler. Jim, as you know, drug-related deaths have increased in America by more than three times between 2002 and 2017, and opioid-related deaths have skyrocketed. What are the primary reasons for these dramatic increases? Well, the, the opioid epidemic, you know, it, it's... If we look at the, the roots of it, you know, I think we're, we're looking at the pharmaceutical companies and their marketing techniques and the way that they work with physicians and prescribers to incentivize them, or they used to, to incentivize them to prescribe their medications. We had a talk yesterday, but it, it, I think it's important to, to repeat, America as, as a whole doesn't do well with pain. We don't know the difference between pain and discomfort for most people. So, you know, I, I twist my ankle or right now I have a pinched nerve in my neck and it, it has pain going across my shoulder and down my arm. It's pretty much constant pain. This flares up every, I don't know, 18 months or so. And um, there are times where it's incredibly uncomfortable. And there are times where it's, you know, just a, a numbness. And when it first happened to me, I was like, this is the worst pain anyone has ever felt in the history of the world. You know, I felt that I understood childbirth because I had this pain. And when I went to my doctor, you know, they said, well, we can give you some, some oxycodone and that'll help with the pain. Nobody or very few people actually need that level of pain medication. Everything that was happening to me was fixed through an anti-inflammatory and some visits to a chiropractor. Um, so if I had gone and followed the direction of my MD, who knew that I was a person living in recovery and still was suggesting opiates, who knows where I'd be today. And that's, that's fairly common, right? When somebody is prescribed something, their prescription runs out, 
and then they become hooked and then they turn to other drugs. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, because the with opiates, especially the withdrawal is so uncomfortable that that people search out other drugs in order to you know, numb that pain. So that's curious. There, there's this great withdrawal after a prescribed drug is given to a patient. Correct. That's when it's been used for a period of time. What What is typically a, a period of time where somebody needs will become an addict? Yeah. Well, you know that's that's a huge debate. A huge it, it, does it Does it depend on that that individual's predisposition t- toward addiction? That's a big part of it. Okay. You know, I I mean, you you have had drinks in your life, and yet you're not an alcoholic. You know, from the very first drink that I had, I was an alcoholic. I mean, I, I was going after it. And, you know, I, you know, having been your neighbor, I know that you don't drink on a regular basis. In your 20s, there were probably times you drank to excess, but it didn't make you an alcoholic. Same thing around medication. There are people that take pain meds that they may become dependent on them, but they're not addicted to them. And there's a difference. How can healthcare professionals be more diligent in understanding that? And because you said your physician knew you were in recovery and still prescribed this. That seems that seems like very poor practice, from my opinion. Well, and it's what they know. So, you know, I, I mean, I, I love medical professionals. And, um, you know, I have often said that if I'm in a car accident, take me to an emergency room, not an AA meeting. There's a reason for, for pain medication. And, you know, the problem is not the drug. The problem is the way the drug is administered. And uh, you know, most medical schools and most MDs and nurse practitioners have very little awareness of addiction. It's just not taught to them. Their, their job as a healthcare provider is to relieve pain, to diagnose the problem and fix the problem. And you know, I don't, I don't necessarily fault them for the position we're in. I think now, and this is the same conversation I would have with families when they were struggling. It's you get a pass up till today, but now that we know what the problem is, we have to fix it. So we can't continue to prescribe in this manner. And we are seeing a change, but we can't continue to prescribe in the manner we were thinking that there's going to be, it's going to work. We can't do the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. I want to get back to this idea of discomfort versus pain. Can you talk about what the differences are or how somebody should be categorizing one from the other? So I, I was at a, a conference for um, or a presentation that Dr. Mel Pohl from Las Vegas Recovery gave about two weeks ago uh, to benefit a program in Aspen called The Way Out, which does great work with, with folks who are indigent. We actually work with them very closely on getting people help um, who normally wouldn't be able to afford it. And Mel was talking about the kind of the pain scale that people have. So if you go to your doctor and you've got a a back pain or fibromyalgia, they usually say, where are you on the pain scale from one to 10? And Mel was saying, most people come in and say they're at a 10 or a 12. You know, a 10 is your arm has been ripped off, you know, or as, as our medical director, uh, Dr. Chris Reevely likes to say, you know, you've been tied to a tree and horses are pulling off all your limbs. That's a 10. Most of us never experience that, thankfully. You know, that for most of us, our pain is, when it's extreme, is maybe an eight. And having education around that is helpful. 
Yeah. So I, I, when we start treating people with pain and we are not a pain clinic, we, we refer out to people who have chronic pain, but when we start working with people who say I have chronic pain and I've been on opiates, I've been on benzodiazepines to help with this for years, we help them look at where their pain is and what, and the difference between pain and discomfort. Let's go back to the opioid epidemic. What are some of the negative byproducts of that epidemic that some people might be, or most people might not be thinking about? So I think we tend to think about the person who's using the drug and them solely, the person who's, whether it's drinking or opiates, whatever, the, the identified individual, if you will, who's, and, and it's their problem. What we don't always look at is the effect it has on the family, the effect it has on society, on the workplace, on safety in general. You know, someone who's using opioids on a regular basis usually has, I mean, what's the average family? Three or four people that are distracted at work because they're thinking about the identified individual and their drug use. It has, you know, they're, if they're working, they're showing up impaired to work and not doing a great job. So it has that effect on society. Or they're not working and they are breaking the law or um, using public resources to you know, continue their life. There's also the cost of, of health care and, and getting help. So I, I think there's, you know, the, we tend to focus that, you know, Johnny is, is using oxycodone or Johnny is shooting heroin or drinking. And that's the problem where, and, and the only thing we need is for Johnny to change his life and then everything will be perfect. And the reality is very different than that. Let's talk about Harmony Foundation. Can you describe the model for treatment here? Sure. So we've been around since 1969. We're a 12-step based program, which means that we use the approach that was created through Alcoholics Anonymous um, and then adopted by Narcotics Anonymous and Gambling Anonymous and, and all the other 12-step programs that are out there. Um, we use that as the core of our treatment. So we introduce a, a spiritual path along with looking at people's medical and mental health needs. Um, when we started in 1969, we adopted what's known as the Minnesota model that was uh, created in Minnesota, you know, kind of polished and packaged by uh, Hazelin Foundation. When folks first started coming here, their detox protocol was some vitamin B12 and sleep it off. Time has shown us that that's not the most effective way to help someone transition to recovery. Our goal here at Harmony, our mission, is to build a foundation for people for to address their substance use. So we're, there is no great cure. There's no pill that you can take. There's no magic to 28 days. It is it is a long process for folks, but uh, we, we want to start that here. And we build this foundation with the goal for every single person who comes here that they achieve abstinence and have quality of life that's fantastic. Over a period of time, and, and some of this has happened rapidly in the last couple of years, we've expanded our mental health care. About four years ago, we had two mental health professionals on campus. Today, we have 12. The vast majority of the people who are coming to us are suffering with some mental health issue, whether it's trauma, anxiety, depression, something more chronic, and we we stabilize them here. Again, what we really do is stabilization assessment and start the treatment process for people. We build that foundation. Do you ever see people coming in who who just are not ready? And And if so, what do you do with those folks? Yes. Yeah. There are people that show up for treatment. And, uh, you know, I, I think I probably saw more of this during intervention work or was more aware of it during that period of time. 
And that certainly helped me for a lot of the conversations I have today. There are people who who don't know. Maybe they haven't hit their bottom. Maybe they haven't seen consequences happen in their life to a degree that's, that will cause them to want to make change. Um, I think we make change when things become uncomfortable. And for some people, that can be getting a DUI is enough of a discomfort that they, they want to make change. For some people, it's becoming homeless, getting HIV, prostituting themselves, committing crimes, whatever it might be. We have to pick a point that things aren't comfortable enough. I, I think, and well, I know we're going to talk about families more, but there is an ability that we have as family members, as people who love someone, to help raise that bottom. There are ways that we, we interact with people who are struggling that in a normal situation look like help. But when we add addiction to the mix, actually becomes enabling. So let's talk about families. What are some of the early warning signs that a family member, brother, sister, child, is headed down the, the addiction path? You know, um, I, things that we see commonly are you know being caught in lies, slipping grades, you know, for for students, behavior that is abnormal. Uh, it's being out all late, new groups of friends. You know, I. There, there's a time that parents or loved ones, friends can step in and say, your well-being is more important to me than our relationship. I think a lot of times we get paralyzed out of fear that if I talk to you about the way you show up, that you're not going to love me anymore or you're going to disappear and, and that is a reality. There are, there are people, as I told you earlier, I cut my family off and there are people that will do that and may walk away. You know, I think in the, for the, for the families, for the individuals, the friends, the loved ones, we have to decide if, if we want the disease in our life that way. And in my recovery, I've had people who I love very much, who I've had to say, I can't help you. You know, what you're, what you're asking me to do will not help you. And I'm not willing to do that. I am willing to help you in the following ways. And I've lost their friendships because of that. When somebody is without a doubt certain that somebody in their family needs help, give, can you give some resources or tools or advice for how to approach that person and have a conversation with them? Well, I think be honest. You know, this is, part of it is to say, you know, be honest and own your piece. So it's a very different conversation to say, Sally, you're doing drugs and you're hanging out with the wrong crowd and we're not going to have that in my house versus Sally, I see you doing these things and this is the way it affects my decision making. I love you so much. I can't allow you to continue to bring these friends that are obviously doing this behavior into my home. You know, when, especially for parents, when you have someone who is whether they're a minor or, or an adult who's living in your home and has behavior that's unacceptable to you, but you allow it to continue because of your love for the child, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're altering your moral window on what's acceptable to you. If you wouldn't let a stranger come into your house and smoke crack, why would you allow your child to do it? And yet people continue to do that because of fear, which is normal. I think the you know, resource-wise, there's a great book by by Jeff and Deborah Jay called Club First that really does give people a, a good understanding of the intervention process. 
please don't watch TV and think that because I watch The Intervention Show, I can do this on my own. I used to and, and still tell families, I watch HGTV all the time, but you don't want me rewiring your house. You know, find a, a good clinical, clinically trained and licensed interventionist if you're at that point. I want to get back to parents and family members. Do you think that it's a fair statement to say that most parents know that their son or daughter has a problem before help is ever requested? And if that is the case, I'm you know, essentially describing denial here. What do you say to that parent who is hoping that this problem will go away on its own? Well, it probably won't. I mean, that, that's, you know, if, if you have a child, if you think there's a problem, there's a problem. Even if your child isn't using to the level that you believe they are, if there's a problem in your home that's been created by drugs and alcohol that you're having, then your family has a problem and you need to find a way to address it. You know, when you talk about parenting and, um, and warning signs, so I, I'm someone who should be savvy about, about drugs. You know, I, I have a history of using. I've worked in this field for 16, 17 years now, 15 years. Math is hard, but I've worked in this field for a while. There's a, a great exercise, and um, it, it's actually a trailer that's set up as a teenager's bedroom. And you walk through and take a look, and you're and when you walk through it on the way out, you identify what could be connected to drugs. You know, as as a guy in my fifties, you know the the bent soda can with holes in it, the hollowed out apple, you know, a bong, you know, tin foil, things like that are easily identifiable. I don't, I quite honestly don't know how bath salts are used. I don't know how kratom is used, and so I wouldn't know. It could be on a table in a room, and I would have no idea as a parent. So get educated. Let's talk about the individual who's struggling with addiction. What do you say to them when they're scared to reach out for help? Well, the first thing is that there's a solution. You don't have to stay trapped in this. It is a once you have identified that you have a problem, it is a very very lonely place to be, and you don't need to live like that anymore. There's uh, community. There are uh, other people who are willing to support you. And, you know, there are people who struggle with 12-step programs because of the spiritual component. There are a lot of ways to recovery. I am a, a strong advocate for 12-step. That's what saved my life. But I know that there are people that the message there doesn't speak to them. And I would say don't stop looking. So one of the things that I have seen is that virtual reality is being used as a tool to defer or delay when a patient will take their pain medication. And I wanted to ask you about new technologies that are being introduced to the recovery community and to your work here at Harmony or at, at other centers that well, are, are giving you hope for being effective tools in, in helping patients? Well, one of the major solutions to addiction, one of the big pieces in treatment is connection. You know, we talk about addiction as a disease of isolation. And when people enter recovery, we want to help them be connected with people. Here at the Harmony Foundation, we get a lot of clients from very remote areas of Wyoming and Nebraska and Southern Colorado who may not have access to community, ranchers who are really out there by themselves. 
And we are using technology to allow for virtual connections. So if, if I'm living in, in remote Wyoming, I can log on to a daily meeting of alumni who are connecting with one of our clinicians. It's still new in, in development, but it's been very well received as a way of keeping people connected. What about wearables? We talked about this a little bit yesterday when we were touring through Rocky Mountain National Park, which is fantastic. Yeah, it was beautiful. And, you know, there was a close today. So we were, oh, we're so lucky. Thank you for doing that, by the way. But, but what about wearables as a technology to help people hold, be held accountable or to monitor usage? Any, anything, any progress going on there? So there, there are some case management tools around GPS yes. locations um, more than and there, there may very well, and I'm sure I'll get a call if there are be tools that are out there right now that measure blood pressure or things like that. I mean, certainly for people with alcohol issues, um, the DUI courts for a long time have demanded for the breathalyzer starts for cars. So I can't start a car. There's a, a personal breathalyzer by a company called Soberlink, which takes a photograph of people and has their GPS. So you can see where they're doing it. So those we talked about, you know, have, have allowed for earlier intervention because if I'm, you know, I could be presenting a, a clean breathalyzer every single day, but if the photograph shows that so I'm holding the breathalyzer while someone else is blowing into it, it provides a greater accountability. I, I, I'm excited at the opportunity that some of these things will have. I think technology is going to revolutionize what we do because I, medications like Anabuse or even buprenorphine, which helps support people in early recovery, or Vivitrol. If there's a kind of a non-invasive version of that that comes out through technology, I think that'll be very well received. Jim, this has been a great conversation, and I really appreciate you taking the time out to have it. Where can people find out more about you and about Harmony Foundation? Well, I'm all over the internet. So there is, I, there's another James Kepler, so don't Google him. He's a, a distant cousin who also works in this field. He's a great guy. Really? Okay. Yes. Lives in Pennsylvania and is a therapist. But if you Google Jim Geckler, I'm, I'm there. They can call the Harmony Foundation. They can reach out to us at harmonyfoundationinc.com. And I, I know we'll put a link on the resource page. I just want to encourage folks, if you're listening and this connects with you in some way, reach out for help. There's a lot of help available. And um, you know, there is... There's no shame in asking for help. It's actually, I think I'm, I'm most proud of people and have the greatest admiration for them when they reach out for help. Well, thank you for that. And, and Jim, I'm very proud to be your friend and very proud to know you. You sharing your story about your personal journey and your recovery, I'm sure will give people a lot of hope who are struggling with this disease and you have given great advice, great tips for family members, for co-workers, for friends of people who are struggling. And, and I think one of the main things that people need when they're struggling through times like this is hope. And I think that's what your story has given us today. So thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. Your time is precious and we truly value it. To help continually improve the show, send us your feedback or guest ideas to future at 12geniuses.com. This show couldn't come to you if it weren't for a group of exceptional people. Special thanks to Tony Gordon, Jay Ludgrove, and the rest of the team at GL Productions in London. Finally, 
If you want more information about how we can prepare your leaders for a rapidly changing business world, influenced by shifting demographics, new technologies, and innovative business models, go to 12geniuses.com.